the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again, welcome to the show. Coming up, the damage bill from the flood mounts as stock losses have been confirmed and valuable crops are now completely destroyed. Also on trade today, Australia's PM Albanese is set to meet with China's President Xi. Farmers are being forced to, uh, or being urged rather, to cement trade relationships with China because they say we can make Australian commodities indispensable. We're interdependent. In other words, they depend on us as much as we depend on them. Let me give you some quick examples. Iron ore, about 70% of China's exports come from Australia. LNG, 55%. And in, uh, in the case of wool, 95% of Chinese imports come from Australia. I think it's to Australia's benefit to you know, maintain that dependency. More on that story, uh, trade issues with the UK as well, coming up shortly in the program in about 25 minutes' time. But before we do that, let's turn our attention to the flooding now. And you might have some thoughts about the flood situation or might want to let us know how things are in uh, in your neck of the woods. 0467 We'd like to hear from you here at the Country Hour because uh, the flooding at Yugara and Forbes, that seems to be the uh, focal point at the moment. That's where the situation is still uncertain about how high how high the river levels and the flooding is going to go. Brendan Mansbridge is a stock and station agent and a farmer between Yugara and Goolagong. He says that the rain was heavier than expected. Flooding was much quicker and more severe than forecast and a lot of people got caught out despite thinking and acting as though they were prepared. Yeah, a lot more rain than predicted, Michael. Um, we had 105 millimetres here and in parts of the catchment up you know, over 120 mils, so that's just really amplified things um, through the through the catchment, and a, a lot more water than than what was expected, and a lot more damage than it was expected, and a lot more water lying over paddocks and things like that. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, we're we're sort of at the peak of a flood here, the second flood through the Lachlan River here in, in under a fortnight, um, and yeah, it's not quite as high as it was uh, a fortnight ago, but um, it could still come up more yet. So expecting to see potentially some more more crops go under, uh, more country go under. And the crops not looking great now. I mean, I heard some people saying that's it for for many. They wait, they just won't harvest anything. Yeah, certainly some some areas that they won't harvest anything. Um, in our area here, there's still a lot of higher country that. Um, we will still be able to harvest the crops, but uh, with that heavy rainfall that we had um, as well, the, the paddocks are now just absolutely sodden again. So um, it's just unexpected. You know, we just don't know when we're going to be able to get a, a header onto country to to to, uh, to start taking the crop off. And the livestock as well, they'd be struggling too. You know, wet underfoot and problems with pasture too. I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lot, you know, the just sheep are sick, sick of walking in water. Um, all the time, everything's just sodden, and um, yeah, certainly we sort of we we've been able to prepare and, and shift stock here to, to higher ground, but um, closer to Yagara, where the Mandatory Creek has come through there uh, yesterday. There's, I'm, I'm hearing some fairly significant stock losses um, from people along the creek who just had no no high country to to shift um, stock to. So we're talking losses of sheep and cattle. Yeah, yeah, both sheep and cattle. Uh, um, hearing one friend of mine I, I managed to speak to last night who potentially thinks he's lost about 700 ewes. Oh, crikey. Uh, and had no 
know where to shift them to. Um, and, um, yeah, just hearing other people with who've had cattle along, you know, um, in paddocks that would not normally be affected along the creek. Um, that, that, um, and they haven't been, a lot of people have been evacuated so they haven't been able to get back to see exactly what um, damage has been done. So that's just one isolated farmer you managed to speak to. So the stock losses would be, would be, and would be huge. And 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 up until this time, we haven't seen a lot of stock losses around the Ugara area. So, you know, this must really have caught people by surprise. Yeah, it was the the, the flood in the creek was um, a, a lot higher than anyone's ever seen before, and a lot. You know, the locals were prepared. Um, they put out put out the warnings yesterday morning, and people were prepared. But um, that the water that came through and the speed was through, we just were not expecting that, and that's just um, unfortunately a lot of people haven't been able to, to do anything um, to, to prepare for that. And I would imagine a lot of people are still isolated, and, and many have been isolated for a long time. Yeah, yeah, you know, especially when you get sort of west of Forbes, out that direction, there's a lot of people out for a long time and will continue to be, but... Um, Around here, uh, there was a lot of lot of uh, rescues yesterday, especially in the Yarra town. Had helicopters working to to help people for off roofs and things like that. Um, just water gone in places where it's before. A wall of water just shooting through in in small towns and and over properties. I've, I've only made it to town very briefly yesterday to um to pick up some friends who had water at home. Um, but uh, I, the way I saw the water briefly when I, I got to the showground was, um, yeah, it was there was water everywhere. Never imagined I would see it. Mm. And 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 people saying it's worst they've ever seen. So worst in living memory. Yeah, certainly um, it, it is. Yeah. Brendan Mansbridge, uh, who's involved in a farming operation between Yugara and uh, also Goolagong, and uh, the situation there, uh, so uh, for many saying that's the worst they've ever seen, worst in living memory, maybe the worst ever in some parts, uh, stock losses, uh, hundreds of uh, sheep uh, and uh, also cattle being confirmed now, as well as uh, crop losing losses uh, mounting as well. It's 11 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, Brett Dunn has uh, two access roads to his farm on the Merrin Creek east of Swan Hill in the New South Wales Riverina. One is badly flooded. Another remains out of of the water, but it's cut off because it has three metres of water flowing over the low-lying bridge that crosses the creek. And when that bridge was rebuilt a few years ago, the height was dropped by around four metres. Brett Dunn says the only way in and out is by tractor down four kilometres of flooded road. Uh, at the moment, we have no access to the farm. We're driving tractors, ferrying people and vehicles in and out. One road's underwater and another road, the bridge is underwater. Right, so let's start with the road that's underwater that you're, you're ferrying people in and out with the tractor on. How deep's that water? Uh, in spots, it's about a metre deep. We've tried to keep the water off the road the best that we can, but to no avail, really. Like, it's just beat us, and, and um, yeah, it's just something that we need to do at the moment. Right, so a metre deep, so definitely tractor-only. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely tractor-only, yep. So you've had to sit your vehicles at the end of that road, out out on the on the side of the road and you have to go back and forth in the tractor to those vehicles? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've got kids at school and other people need to access 
town for various reasons, and, and um, yeah, that's just what we've got to do at the moment. How long is that tractor trip? Uh, it's about 4 k's, one way. And have you got anywhere to, to, to put your vehicles at the end of that road, or are they just, just sitting on the side of the road? Uh, there's a variety of different things parked there, but, yeah, no, there's enough room to park a car and a few different vehicles. Brett, I see also you had those vehicles out on the road, but I think you had you had a breakdown and that meant that you had to trailer a vehicle out to, to replace the one that had broken down? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we're just ferrying cars at the moment. Right, so that's one access road for your property. Now, as you said, you've got another access road which is out of water, but there's a bridge crossing that has a lot of water over it? Yeah, that's correct, yep, yep just a local bridge on the Kabul siding road that was kind of put put down on the waterline for some reason. So that's a crossing over the Merrin Creek? Yeah, it's a crossing over the Merrin Creek. It, it accesses the other end of the farm. Now, it's a relatively new bridge, Brett, and you said it's been put down on the waterline. So when it was, when it was rebuilt uh, several years ago, authorities reduced the height of it? Yeah, that's correct. For some reason, they decided that it was better to be lower than higher, and and um, even though they knew the previous bridge heights, they decided that they'd lower the bridge and excavate the creek bank. Right, so they actually had to cut the existing pylons and then dig out a lot of dirt to do that lowering. Oh, yeah, they've excavated, I reckon, there's 1,500 tonne of dirt sitting next to the bridge where they excavated the um, approach. So how much water would be going over that bridge at the moment? Uh, well, probably around 6,000 megs a day, and at, uh, at 1,500 megs, the bridge is underwater. So there's a fair bit of water, and it's, you know, they all talk about constraints in the Murray-Darling. Well, they're building constraints, and it's, and it's holding up the water and doing all sorts of stuff. Brett Dunn, who's a farmer at Melul, east of Swan Hill in the New South Wales Riverina, and the Murray River Council, which is responsible for that bridge, has declined to comment. It's 16 minutes past 12. We'll uh, cross back to uh, Hamish Cole to find out more about the flooding shortly. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, the New South Wales uh, government has ditched a divisive bill that's inflamed tensions within the coalition over the contentious issue of koala habitat. The bill introduced last week by the Agriculture Minister Dougald Saunders threatened to revive a fierce debate about koalas and the legislation was designed to cut red tape for people wanting to clear native forests on their private properties by removing local councils from the approval process and extending private logging approvals from 15 to 30 years. Mr Saunders uh, issued a statement yesterday saying that the government would not proceed with the bill after several government MPs said they would cross the floor to vote against it. One company that uh, works with uh, two or 300 landholders to harvest timber from farms says the decision to withdraw the bill is bitterly disappointing. Victor Maguire is a resource manager for Sustainable Forest Management, which manages 100,000 hectares of private native forestry and has 11 harvesting subcontractors in the field. He told David Clawton that the MP at the heart of the decision is misinformed about the bill. I don't think Jeff Provost has got the... The full information about what's actually going on on the ground. Um, I think he's been a little bit greenwashed 
and very disappointing. Why do you think that that you know they've got to this point where they've withdrawn the bill? I think that Jeff's just been ill informed, and um, I'm not quite sure why they've withdrawn the, the bill. Obviously, they didn't have the support in and the numbers. And when you say he's been ill informed, what are the key things that you think he's got wrong? I think he's worried about the koala protection and um, those sorts of things were already covered into the, the PNF with the local land services with their plans. Is that enough though? Because we're, we're seeing this, um, we're seeing koala populations being badly affected. So, so whatever we're doing at the moment isn't enough. It'd be obvious. It'd be a fair statement to make, wouldn't it? It is, but when you look at uh, core koala habitat being knocked over for housing developments, um, Port Macquarie, there's a in, in the state called Ascot Park was core koala habitat, and koalas had to be removed so the trees could be removed for housing. I don't see how forestry, where we're growing trees for the future, can be as bad as housing developments. And so, what impact would that have on your business and uh, on some of the, the landholders that? that uh, you service the only impact it's going to have is another level of bureaucracy and the hold-ups that are involved with it we've probably got uh, four landholders on our books at the moment um, that we're going through the process with some of them are, are elderly and wanted the money to retire and get off farm with so it's just slowed things down how long does it take da's most councils in new south wales the da's are out to six months and are there particular councils where it takes longer? Um, Tweed Shire is probably the um, the biggest issue at the moment because they'll just push it further back because they just don't want it. They don't want private native forestry at all? No, no. And that's because of um, their concern, I imagine, about wildlife, particularly koala habitat. Would that be fair to say? That's right, and it's unfounded because the PNF issued by the local land services covers all the koala habitat and protocols and it's very strict in, in the way they go about it. Paint a picture for me, if you could, about what it looks like, private native forestry. It's only selective logging, um, probably looking at one tree out of every five. Um, so if you looked at it from the air, you'd be lucky to see any disturbance. Um, and when you look out on the ground, you're probably going to see a few heads probably... 20, 30 metres apart, um, sort of scattered through the forest. There's, there's no no clear felling in private native forests in New South Wales at all. It's, and do you do any measuring of the impact of that on, on wildlife? Yeah, we do um, surveys before and after. Local land services advise us on threatened species that might be in the area. Um, and if there is, there's protocols we have to, to follow. And so what are you seeing in those areas that have been harvested? Do you go back after a period of time to check on how things are recovering? Yeah, and usually within two years, you're lucky to see any sign of disturbance at all. What do you think about um, the supply? What's it looking like in terms of uh, the, the building materials that it require? There's obviously a, a, a shortage globally of, of building materials, isn't there? Yeah, yep, and we're falling further behind. A lot of our timber goes to heavy industrial users like railways, bridges, um, and the likes of those sorts of things, where there there are no alternatives. Power poles, there's just no uh, feasible alternatives at the moment 
Victor McGuire, the Resource Manager for Sustainable Forest Management. Now, the milling industry on the north and mid-north coast directly employs about 2,500 people, plus several thousand more involved in harvesting and hauling logs, according to Noel Atkins. He's a forestry consultant for several milling companies, including Hayden's Timber in Kempsey, which employs 51 employees in an operation that supplies timber for mines and railways, as well as construction timber and decking. He says the decision is bad news for the industry and a result of poor timing, politically speaking. Probably withdrawing it was the only course of action because the disappointment to me is the fact that it was put up so late in the political cycle. I mean, the information to put it up has been around for a couple of years and uh, it's just taken all this time to for them to put it on the table and really uh, all the misinformation around it has basically <coughs> made it a a political agenda rather than a good policy agenda. Yes, and, uh, and, and that's that's having real uh, world effects on on the sorts of businesses that you you advise, isn't it? Well, it does because the, the misinformation uh, uh, has led people to think that it's a land clearing exercise, or it's a koala beating exercise, where it's really got nothing to do with either of those. It, it's all about um, just proper management and, and clearance because. For those who know the, the private native forest industry, it, it's owned by private farmers uh, and they've been doing it for generations and it's all about renewable and regeneration on their properties because they will harvest every 25, 30 years and they've been doing it for 200 years. So they're very good conservationists in my view and, and uh, there's, a, there's a private native code for practice uh, relating to um, private forestry that is very, very tight and regarded as one of the best in the world. So the protection that's available to flora and fauna under that is very, very strong. It's administered by the local land services and still has, <coughs> excuse me, still has oversight by the EPA. So as far as the concerns about the protection, the native wildlife and and, uh, and flora, it's very, very strong. And really the, the, the dual consent position with the council in my experience, is something that councils really don't want to do because they don't have the resources or the expertise to be dealing with um, uh, native forest harvesting. It's not their cup of tea, nor do they have the staff to deal with it. And But unfortunately, because it's there, they're forced to deal with it and have no option but to impose um, the requirements for DAs and, and various um, studies that they might want impact studies, whether it's a koala study or a flora study or, or something else. And, and that can delay a harvesting operation for two to three years before you can actually harvest the timber on your own property. And, and there, it's a critical time for the, the timber milling sector, isn't it? Because of the bushfires, obviously a lot of the resource was burnt. So going to private native forestry might be one of the only places they could go to, do, to access supply. Well, you're absolutely right there, David. Because with the not only the uh, the, the bushfires followed by the the, the flooding rains, has limited severely limited access to the bush. A lot of people don't realise that while the timber mills themselves might not be directly affected with flooding or rain, it's the forests that are. So you can't access them until it's sufficiently dry, and then you got all the repairs on roads and and access routes to that timber as well. So uh, that's been difficult, and most mills have not been operating 
anywhere near capacity for well over 12 months. Private forestry consultant Noel Atkins and the Minister Dougal Saunders said that the government will continue to discuss the issue with local councils to develop legislation that unites communities and industry. 25 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, let's go back to the flooding now and the damage bill from the flood, uh, as we heard earlier, it mounts. So we're hearing more reports of stock losses. They've been confirmed. Valuable crops have now been completely destroyed. We're hearing more about that. Hundreds of stock, both sheep and cattle, uh, have been uh, washed down the uh, the river, apparently, and up to 11 helicopters have been out rescuing townsfolk as well. Many are saying it's the worst flooding in some areas in living memory, and some are saying it's perhaps the worst flooding ever seen. Uh, on the Lachlan and the flood is uh, still moving down. The Lachlan, our reporter, Hamish Cole, has been busy today. He's uh, out and about in Condoble and good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, uh, yeah, that damage bill, that seems to be mounting. We're hearing more reports of uh, stock losses, sheep and cattle. Is that what you've been hearing? Yeah, particularly in and around that Ugaura area with the the scenes that we saw yesterday, almost a, a mini Lismore, it was there just with the, the nature of the flooding and really shocking. I, you know, there's, people haven't had a chance to, to really see how, how big those losses are, but it's expected to be quite the, the damage bill and a real a real gut punch for a lot of farmers in that area. You know, that's a, an area which has lots of livestock, lots of cropping, and with the nature of that flooding that they experienced there, it was just incredible incredibly devastating scenes to, to see but yeah uh, looking like widespread crop uh, uh livestock losses in that area here in condoblin where i am the the situation's not much better with uh the river rises over the over the evening um the lachlan river's currently at 7.35 meters rose rapidly overnight and as a result number of levee banks were breached and a number of rural properties are uh, homes uh, on on land being uh, being inundated or will be inundated in the coming hours and days so really just stretching from Condoblin to to Cowra along the the Lachlan River it's just devastating scenes there and that's yeah that's right people isolated and we're talking hundreds of kilometers where that flooding is impacting and uh, hundreds hundreds of farms uh, thousands of livelihoods involved and uh, many of them not uh, not going to harvest a crop many of them uh, you know having lost livestock and livestock of course worth a lot of money at the moment so um, uh, as you say a real blow and that's the thing, you know, we've been talking about the effects of this rain has been having on farmers for, for months now. Yeah, this is really yeah. The, this is really the first time, though, that we're starting to see it's not just crops and, and livestock being lost, it's it's farmers' homes as well now. So it's just a real, real devastating, devastating impact for them. Uh, one farmer we, we spoke with yesterday, he's not expecting to, to get back to his property until after Christmas due to the nature of the flooding that we've seen here in Condoblin. Uh, it's just really, it's really heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to see those those losses are just going to be quite the quite the damage bill. The premier spoke earlier today about uh, 
you know, there's going to be hundreds of families impacted by this and they'll be there to support them. But it's going to be hard to see how that's possible with the nature of the losses that, that we're seeing. People talking about uh, well in, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage for, for each property. It's it's just really tragic scenes. That's right. And uh, it's not just, well, we're talking about the, the stock losses, the crop damage, uh, bad enough in itself, uh, but also machinery damage now into the sheds and that sort of thing, also into the uh, farmhouses, uh, f- uh, fence losses, uh, infrastructure losses as well. The roads are uh, in a terrible state. So this is going to be, we're, we're talking about uh, months and months to recover, if not years. Yeah, it really is. You know, with the with the nature of the flooding as well, the flash flooding that we saw over the weekend with the speed of those river rises, what we've seen overnight as well, it's caught a lot of people off guard. So here in Condobla and just speaking with a few people uh, around town, just that, you know, they've got properties out, uh, out uh, of town where they just they couldn't get in to to save some of their machinery and they've had sheds that have been impacted so it's just a huge a huge effect in that sense there's also the the mental health side of it which is going to take years to recover from if people are able to just with the the nature of this this flooding just how widespread it is and how much destruction it's it's caused it's really it, we heard a few people making a comparison to the the 2019-20 bushfires with the the scale and the the widespread devastation that they that caused it's a lot of comparisons are being made to that here on the ground in Kedobin. and and also next year there's a question mark over next year's cropping and uh, next year's agricultural program as well i understand well, that's the thing with the the amount of rain that we've seen and the amount of rain that is still to come with this La Nina. You know, there's a there's forecasts for rain this weekend. Once again, thunderstorms, which could bring quite heavy rainfall. So there's just no La, La Nina. Uh, they're saying maybe till till uh, January. Which that would just be devastating for so many people. That would really just push these these cropping windows way out of whack and. Even then, just people not being able to get on on the land to just do basic things like spraying fertiliser and and getting the weeds in check and whatnot. It's just, it really is heartbreaking for a lot of people. Throw in now that homes are being lost and whatnot, that just completely removes people's abilities just to to run a farm without your home there. So it's just a real gutter punch to to a lot of farmers across the Central West. And not to mention the the terrible damage and uh, um, frightening scenes in many, many towns as well as a result so uh yeah we'll watch we'll watch with the, this with interest and uh see what uh, further assistance uh, might become available hamish we'll have to leave it there thanks for your time thanks for having me hamish cole our reporter who's uh, at the moment in condoblin you're listening to the country hour it's uh, 29 minutes to one we'll get the layers from the bureau shortly but uh, before we do that let's get some news headlines now from adam story good afternoon afternoon michael well there's a uh, <clears throat> hundred additional adf personnel coming into that uh, that flood area this afternoon yeah they uh, we, uh, we were asking people about that mm. and they hadn't seen too many okay well there's a hundred on the way to various parts right. along with uh, 12 flood uh, operators i suppose they're uh Specialists in flood rescues from New Zealand have arrived in Sydney and they're making their way out there now. Uh, so just briefly, 1,200 flood warnings in place and almost 1,000 calls for help over the last 24 hours. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, 
And many, many, we're just talking to yeah. Hamish there about the hundreds of kilometres affected by flooding. Yeah. From Cowra all the way through Condoblin That's should, it. as well. And so. even areas not flooded, just the roads are damaged. Mm. Yeah. Can't drive on them. I know. So yeah, the roads you're are isolated shocking. one way or another. Shocking yeah. state, the roads, and that's going to take months and months to fix. Yeah. You know? And, yeah, incredible. And the freight, you think about, not to mention the uh, the issues for individual towns and the flooding mm. in houses, and, yeah. So, and given those roads were already damaged I know, to begin terrible. with, so shocking. you can imagine. Yeah, I know. Uh, in other news, there's the big meeting this afternoon between the Prime Minister and the Chinese leader, so we're hoping for a slight thaw in relations. Uh, we've been told not to expect too much, uh, but obviously... Uh, the trade sanctions will be at the top of the agenda. There is also human rights issues that Anthony Albanese plans to raise, including the uh, detention of uh, Chinese Australians in China. Uh, last night, Joe Biden and the Chinese leader had a three-hour sit-down, uh, some harsh words exchanged on Taiwan, uh, but they have agreed to resume talks on climate change and manage their differences on trade. Mm. So there you go, silver yeah. lining in all of that. <laughs> Three hours. Three hours, yeah. yeah, I think Anthony Albanese was happy he's getting 20 minutes. 20 minutes, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But he said it's a win. Yep. It's a win because we haven't talked... First in five years, I think, is it? Since 2016. Yeah. So we we haven't had a sit-down chat Mm. for um, for since 2016, which is a long long time. Well, it's uh, the main tugboat operator is uh, locking hundreds of staff out over an industrial dispute that's been running for three years now. Uh, it's the Danish tugboat operator Svitzer, uh, which holds a monopoly over 17 ports around Australia. Uh, the uh, Maritime Union says the company uh, has told it it will lock out almost 600 employees indefinitely, and, and that includes at uh, Port Botany in Sydney, Fremantle, Geelong and Brisbane. Uh, billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks has had a uh, major victory at the AGL annual general meeting. He's got four independent directors elected to the board. Oh, I was wondering about that. Yeah, and that's after he saw off the chief executive and the chairman earlier this year. Uh, so the AGL uh, chair, Patricia McKenzie, has acknowledged uh, that a big change is underway at AGL. And, of course, um, Mike Cannon-Brooks' plan is for the uh, coal-fired power stations to be shut down earlier mm. than the 2035. Well, she'd have, she'd have to acknowledge change, otherwise um, she's out, she's out too. Be- <laughs> <laughs> That's the reality, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, Bureau of, uh, data from the Bureau of Statistics show that soaring company profits are being blamed for fueling inflation. Uh with uh, they're enjoying skyrocketing profits, uh, they leapt twenty eight percent last year compared to less than two percent uh, for wages. So maybe some of the big yeah. companies should be paying more tax. Jeez, oh, controversy. <laughs> Let's open the open the lines There's up. There's that, that report one, out that was yeah. showing how little tax they are actually yeah. paying. Yeah, yeah. exactly, mm. exactly. So mm. it's uh, not the consumer's fault that they're running at <laughs> That's right. eight percent or whatever right. it is. Yeah. It's a company's fault. Yeah, mm. exactly. Okay, yeah, all right. It's the, the big end of town, buddy. That's right. yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks for that analysis there. That was Adam's story there. With uh, He'll be back at 1 o'clock, so you keep listening for that. It's uh, 25 minutes to 1 here on the New South Wales Country, and now it's time to find out what's happening with the weather details now. And Jordan Ataro at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. 
Now we're hearing it's of it. So it's uh, is it fine and sunny? I, I, they were saying it's uh, it's getting cold down in the, around the delicate area. They're getting some. They've got overcast conditions and a bit of drizzle down there. So is a is a new sort of system coming through the state? Yeah. So we've got basically uh, a quite fast moving front that's moving through the south of the state as we head through today. Uh, it is producing some generally. You know, spotty showers across parts, very light in many areas, however, so as you say, more like a tune to drizzle, if anything. Uh, since 9am, the highest we've seen in the state is actually half a millimetre, and that was actually occurring right near the coast near Javis Bay. But otherwise, through the central west, we've been seeing, you know, maybe a drop here or there, but nothing significant. Um, it is going to be a continuing trend that we could see again, it's just some spotty showers. And while there's a, a potential storm on the forecast, it is basically a winter like storm, which is again, all attributed to that cold air that comes across and most likely, again, generally light showers and potentially even maybe some isolated small hail in some spots. Otherwise, we are generally starting to see that cold trend in the temperatures coming through the state, seeing, again, much more winter-like um, weather pattern at the moment. And we are starting to see some snow potentially fall around parts of the Alpine and even potentially even up towards parts of the Oberon Plateau as we head through into Wednesday Otherwise, obviously, generally quite clear conditions across the inland parts with generally some lighter showers across the region. The coastal parts are going to be getting the most of it, though, over the next few days. But for inland areas, the next system we're going to be looking for as we head towards the weekend, Saturday into Sunday, a risk again for returning for severe thunderstorms across flood-affected areas. Still early days, uh, no clear indication within the modelling at the moment for any particular location that we can focus on. But it does have obviously the ingredients there that we will be seeing potentially some isolated severe thunderstorms coming through as we head into the coming weekend. Oh right, okay. So it sounds like that uh, the rainfall there and the storm activity seems to have been ratcheted up a bit in the last 24 hours for that system. I thought it was not going to have much much in it, but it sounds like it's got a bit more now for the weekend. It's a comparative nature, I would say, for what we've been talking at the moment. Obviously, the system went through on the weekend, extreme high-end rainfall, significant response in our rivers, widespread lightning activity, uh, 24-hour lightning strike, counts of upwards of a million lightning strikes across New South Wales over that Sunday period. As we head into the next system, it definitely has the focus that we could see a line of storms stretching across the north to the south through the inland, edging closer towards parts of the east as we head into the weekend. But the widespread nature of severe thunderstorms is less likely and the high-end rainfall risk at this stage is looking to be one that we'll just have to continue to monitor. But as I say, no clear indications at the moment where we're expecting more or less rainfall um, in this system coming over the weekend. Okay, and it's uh, too hard to chart where it might be and, and how much rainfall? Is it a little bit too early? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. The modelling at the moment is consistent in showing that system coming across from the west. It has very consistent timing, very consistent, uh, let's say, moisture within the atmosphere. The differences would be is that the warmth that we saw ahead of the system that went across last weekend was extremely um, contrasted from where we saw the temperatures before and after. And due to that cold air we're seeing coming across in the next couple of days, that contrast isn't really there. So the actual strength of the storms looks to be somewhat weaker in comparison, but it still actually has that risk that we could see some localised heavier falls, but just not that widespread impact that we've obviously seen over the last weekend. Okay, so again, once again, we'll watch it with interest and uh, see how that develops. Uh, Jordan, thanks for that. 
Catch you later, Michael. Jordan Natara at the Bureau. It's 20 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, a large number of major highways in New South Wales have been closed due to the flooding. That includes the Mitchell Highway, the Newell, Henry Parks Way, Lachlan Valley Way, Henry Lawson Way, as well as the Midwestern, the uh, Camilleroy, Castle Ray, Guida and Cobb Highways. Uh, Simon O'Hara is the CEO of Road Freight New South Wales, and he told David Clawton that the floods are causing a lot of road damage. They're holding up food deliveries to regional towns, and they're adding to the huge maintenance bills for freight operators. We're seeing a widespread uh, road closures across the state, which is impacting freight's ability to move goods into supermarkets and elsewhere. Uh, we're seeing that particularly in rural and regional areas. Uh, this particular weather system has focused itself uh by and large, in the latest iteration over the last couple of days in the Central West, uh, some towns are close to being cut off uh, and you've seen um, pretty horrendous pictures on the television of uh, containers floating down uh, country town streets, uh, which is frankly extraordinary. But what we are seeing is more damage happening to the road system. Um, the whole state is experiencing uh, both state and council roads, uh, experiencing um, uh, road uh, problems in terms of maintenance um, that we just haven't seen in at least, oh, I'd take a stab here, of two generations at what, least. What are you seeing or what are people telling you in, in terms of getting our product moving? Where, where are the major blockages or who's, who's most affected? Uh, well, those that are most affected are the... Uh, towns that and you've seen you know pictures undoubtedly of Forbes and other places particularly in the central west um, where uh, some of those roads have been uh, flooded and some of those towns completely flooded uh, which is extraordinary and we've seen um, you know evacuation sorry evacuation orders in place uh, for certain towns what we need to see is particularly in the central west and other parts of country new south wales is we need to see some of particularly fresh meat moving in um, to the supermarkets to ensure that <coughs> that people have got enough to eat so but the this problem stage, is, is it's getting not food into into those flood affected towns is that what you're saying uh look look uh, to a certain extent it's not critical yet that's always the issue because the food supply chain is a bit distinct to others um and it's it's on a, a, a in terms of the food supply chain it's a, a daily proposition as opposed to necessarily a weekly or a monthly proposition um those particular towns are where we're seeing some blockages and what we're advising our operators is that if the roads are flooded forget it don't risk it uh it's your life is too important to risk it on a a flooded road that you don't know that uh, there may not be any road left um if it's flooded forget it what about getting uh, food into sydney experiencing difficulties there uh, no, there's not an issue here in terms of food in the Sydney at this stage, which is uh, which is good to be able to report. But I'm more concerned about country towns, um, and I'd want to, uh, I'd certainly want to see some of those roads open up as quickly as possible while they're safe to do so. What um, about exports? Is that becoming an issue anyway? Uh, not yet. It's too early to say. Um, exports will be affected, but it's too early to say at this point. Um, we've obviously lost some crops uh, and we're not seeing the bumper crops in other areas that we might have once hoped for. But um, again, uh, I wouldn't like to get into the ins and outs of that just yet until we have a chance to be able to properly analyse it. Simon O'Hara is the CEO of Road Freight New South Wales. 
It's 16 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, farmers are being urged to uh, cement up the trade relations with China instead of diversifying markets because uh, we can make Australian commodities indispensable. The analysis from the Lowy Institute has shown China is dependent on Australia for iron ore, LNG and wool, and it sees commodities that have been uh, able to avoid trade sanctions like those imposed on Australian wine and barley. It comes as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is going to meet with President Xi in the coming days. Richard McGregor is a senior fellow uh, for East Asia with the Lowy Institute, and he told Josh Josh Becker that the sanctions have had a mixed impact on agriculture. Well, look, it's really a sector-by-sector analysis because each sector is different. Um, I guess there's a couple of headline findings. First of all, some of the sectors have been badly damaged. Uh, you know, wine and lobsters, for example. Wine has, you know, nearly 100% tariffs on, on some particular wines. And that has really wiped out what was an extremely valuable uh, uh, export trade with China altogether, as it were. But if you, get, if you look at it sector by sector, uh, the situation is very, very different. We, we have the impression from, you know, the media in many respects, and not unfairly, is that Australia depends on China. We are dependent on them because they make take such a large percentage of our exports. But if you drill down into the exports themselves, we're interdependent. In other words, they depend on us as much as we depend on them. Let me give you some quick examples. Iron ore, about 70% of China's exports come from Australia. LNG, 55%. And in, uh, in the case of wool, 95% of Chinese imports come from Australia. So they need us as much as we need them in those areas. That interconnectedness is a, is a really interesting idea. Some in the wool industry, for example, have said that uh, relying on one buyer for so much of the clip is um, a risk for Australian wool growers. What, do you, what did you find when you looked into that? Well, it's undoubtedly a risk, um, you know, if you if you depend sort of so much on one buyer, then you're at risk. But, you know, the reverse is true, and that's why China hasn't disturbed the wool trade. Um, it's a risk for us, and it's a risk for them. So both sides have minimised that risk by doing nothing to disturb it. You know, for example, if China were to say, well, we're not going to take any more Australian wool, they wouldn't be able to get it from somewhere else and if they are going to diversify it will take them years uh to do so so it's kind of counterintuitive but i think it's to australia's benefit to you know maintain that dependency um because you know if china doesn't have anywhere else to go they will stick what with us i mean to put it in a funny way you know the old saying you know keep your um, friends close your enemies closer and in the case of china it's kind of like keep your friends close and your frenemies closer um, because if the dependency is maintained, then China is not going to be able to sanction those areas of trade. When you step back and look at the overall big picture, what did you find about whether these trade restrictions had um, uh, the intended effect that China may have been hoping for? Well, there's no doubt that the Chinese trade sanctions um, or trade blockages, as people prefer to call them, have failed um, in their intended effect. The intended effect for China would be twofold. First of all, 
uh, China sanctions Australia and Australia changes its political position more to the liking of China. Secondly, Australia, China sanctions Australia. Australia uh, pays a massive cost. Other countries see that. They also change their policies in a way to make them more friendly to China. Well, neither of those things have happened, and largely because of what we just talked about, the interdependencies between the two countries. So even though China has exacted you know, uh, massive sanctions against us, uh, the overall macro impact of the trade blockages has been minimal. Trade in iron ore has continued, LNG has continued, wool has continued, and in the case of some other commodities, commodity markets are fungible. Our coal has been blocked by China. It's just gone into other markets. And the same with barley. Now, it's true that there's an impact. Like in barley, we lost a premium. Instead of se selling to Chinese beer makers, it now goes to feed barley in, say, Saudi Arabia. The same applies to meat um, and beef. You know, we've lost um, some ground in the Chinese market. And China plays a big premium for beef. And so there is damage. And I think in the longer term, there's probably likely to be more damage. But for the moment, uh, we've, we've sort of come out of the first round looking much more intact uh, than many people had predicted when this all started. Richard McGregor, McGregor is a senior fellow with the Lowy Institute. Now, a former Secretary for Agriculture with the United Kingdom has delivered a scathing attack on the free trade agreement his country signed with Australia. George Eustace, who is a Brexit campaigner and helped negotiate the deal, has criticised the UK for rushing into its first deal post-Brexit and former Prime Minister Liz Truss's role in the final negotiations. He told the UK Parliament Australia should not have had such a good deal, particularly on beef and sheep exports. And unless we recognise the failures that the Department for International Trade made during the uh, Australia negotiations, we won't be able to learn the lessons of future negotiations. And there are critical negotiations underway right now, notably on CPTPP and on Canada, and it is essential that the Department for International Trade does not repeat uh, the mistakes it made. And so the first step is to recognise that the Australia trade deal is not actually a very good deal for the UK. Uh, it wasn't for lack of trying on my part. The UK gave away far too much for far too little in return. What would a good agreement have looked like? Well, it would have been having enduring TRQs on beef in particular, but probably also for sheep as well. The volumes probably would have started at around 10,000 tonnes per annum, rising after a decade to around 60,000, perhaps 80,000 tonnes. That's something that could have been manageable. We did not actually need to give Australia nor New Zealand full liberalisation in beef and sheep. It was not in our economic interest to do so, and neither Australia nor New Zealand had anything to offer in return for such a grand concession. And let us not forget as well that while we are about to open our market to unbridled access for Australian beef, Australia remains one of the few countries left in the world that maintains an absolute export ban for British beef. Not a single kilo of British beef is able to be sold in Australia since they maintain a protectionist ban using the BSE, uh, um, BSE episode as a sham reason for doing so. Conservative MP George Eustace. Well, Australian uh, fertiliser and explosive manufacturer Insitec Pivot has weathered a bumpy year, posting a net profit after tax of just over a billion dollars. Clint Jasper has more. 
This year, the price of fertilizers soared after Russia's invasion of Ukraine exacerbated existing supply chain issues, as well as spiking gas prices around the world. In its full-year results, Incitec Pivot reported the price of diammonium phosphate, or DAP, rose from $524 a tonne to $851 a tonne, while urea went from $373 a tonne to $710 a tonne. Despite the price rises, Managing Director and CEO Gianna Johns says the company expects demand from farmers to remain strong into next year. We are very well placed to deliver increased volumes from Foss Hill this year and well positioned to grow our recurring distribution earnings by delivering on our soil health strategy with farm economics expected to remain favourable through the year. Making fertilisers hasn't been easy or cheap. High gas prices made manufacturing more expensive at the company's Phosphate Hill facility, which was compounded by the shutdown of a major gas pipeline that supplied gas from the Northern Territory to Queensland. Despite this, it expects to produce over a million tonnes of fertiliser at Phosphate Hill in the next financial year, saying its gas supplier has confirmed full quantities will be restored by February next year. The gas team secured feedstock for Foss Hill following curtailments in contracted supplies. And while it has come at an elevated cost, it has enabled us to keep the plant running at full rates and capture the earning potential. Clint Jasper reporting there. Let's go to markets. Let's go to Wodonga Cattle. Good afternoon. 1,060 cattle sold to most of the usual buying group. Quality was fair to excellent with a few pens of outstanding feel along the way. Heavy steers and bullocks were in limited numbers. However, there were big numbers of heavy grown heifers. Cows jumped up to just over 600 head and the market sold to mixed price trends over all categories with buyers looking for plenty of shape and finish. Veal gained five, five dollars to 608. Trade steers 476 to 605. Medium weight feeder steers were back 15 to 20, 470 to 530. Trade heifers 460 to 534, finishing firm. Heavy steers, very few to quote, 467 to 616. Bullocks 430 to 465, they were back five. Heavy cows were 30 to 40 cents cheaper and more in places. Heavy cows 340 to 379. The middle run $3 to 350. Dairy 266 to 360. And the better shaped bulls 320 to 362. Leanne Dax, MLA. To car cattle. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers came back to 467 at CTLX. Quality was mostly good. Some good pens of younger cattle suiting both feeders and processes, also a good selection of grown heifers. Some heavyweight cows and a few pens of grown steers. Most of the usual buyers attend operated in a much cheaper market. Bulls sold 20 to 30 cents easier. Cows and most sales were from 40 and up to 50 cents cheaper in places. Grown heifers that were 10 to 20 cents less. Yelling cattle from 10 to 30 cents cheaper and back further in places and good quality villas sold close to unchanged. Villas to the trade made from 537 to 580 cents with restockers paying from 494 to 550 cents. Prime steer yearlings to the trade made from 480 to 520 cents. Prime yearling heifers sold from 370 to 485 cents. Feeders paid from 465 to 602 cents. 
Fastidious and heifer portion made from 450 to 524 cents. Restockers purchase yearling steers from 480 to 525 cents and restocker heifers from mainly 448 to 515 cents. Limited number of grain steers were weight sold from 420 to 455 cents. Feed is paid to 504 cents a kilogram. Grain heifers with cover made from 400 to 472 cents. Planer sales making from 342 to 396 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows mostly sold from 330 to 374 cents. Heavy bulls sold from 295 to 345 cents. This has been Tim Delaney reporting for CTLX. To Gunnar Cattle. Good afternoon. There were only 780 cattle penned as once again floodwaters controlled movement. Yearlings world supplied with several lines of high quality cattle penned. The balance of the offering was quite mixed. A reduced field of buyers in attendance. Demand was weaker from both restocker and feedlotters through the yearling steers resulting in significantly cheaper trends. Lightweights to restockers sold from 518 to 646 cents. Medium weight sea mussels to restock and feed 420 to 570 while heavy feeders sold from 440 to 492 cents. The weaker trends continued through the yearling heifers, again considerably so, with lightweights 450 to 586, medium weights sold from 438 to 538 cents, planar demuscle heifers sold from 406 to 536 cents, heifers over 400 kilos sold from 388 to 480 cents, a few heavy ground steers were sub- Substantially cheaper, 390 to 422 cents to process. Cows saw the greatest price reductions with medium and heavy three schools, 310 to 350 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Canada. Inverell cattle. Good afternoon. Inverell pen 631 had a reduction of 249. It was a balanced offering of yearlings and cows with limited ground steers and heifers. Most cow buyers attended with the usual backgrounder and feeder operators purchasing in a mostly cheaper market. Limited steer weaners sold 6.62, the heifers to 5.82. Very light yielding steers 4.80 to 6.50 sold to background as marginally cheaper. Light steers to background 4.80 to 5.82 significantly cheaper with a quality reduction. Medium feeder steers selling to cheaper trends 4.38 to 5.10, and heavy feeders again marginally cheaper 4.05 to 4.86. Light heifers to feed on 3.54 to 5.18 considerably cheaper again with a reduction in quality. Medium feeders 420 to 480 and processing heifers to average 372. Limited ground steers to 380 and heifers to 375. Cows bore the brunt of the correction. Medium weights 246 to 343. Heavy two scores back 19 cents 228 to 350. The three and four scores as much as 29 cents a kilo back 348 to 365. And the best ball to 380. Neil Geddes with Scone Cattle. Afternoon. Numbers hard for 350. Substantial rainfall again throughout the drawing area. Breeding quality mix, the bulk younger, export cattle limited in supply. The better bred younger cattle sold well, any plain or mixed breeds, cheaper trends. The over 200 kilogram veal steers to the restockers, 594 to 786 cents. Same weight have a portion also to the restockers, 532 to 664 cents a kilogram. Medium weight yearling steers, breeding quality related cheaper trends, 440 to 596 cents. Have a portion 440 to 548 cents a kilogram. The best muscle younger lot to the butchers reached 566 cents. The few ground steers and heifers to the processors cheaper trends. Steers 400 to 410. Heifers reached 402 cents. Heavy cows back 15 cents. The better cover lots 360 to 378 cents. And the best heavy muscle bull reached 330 cents a kilogram. 
He'll get his going cattle for the MLA. And no Forbes sheep and lamb sale today. A cattle sale from 1pm. And it is 1 o'clock.